when there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet, many try but few become, master of the mark market. Well, Nick Griffin, thanks very much for, uh, for coming on Masters of the Market, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks very much, Chris, thanks for having me. And uh, I guess we'll just start by how are you surviving the, uh, the current lockdown, they're, they're pretty interesting times we're living in. Yeah, they are. I mean, I was, we were just discussing it before off the, off the camera, but um, it's one of these times where our business transfers quite seamlessly to to working from home. I mean, and, and you know, I've been running global equities out of Australia for the best part of 15 years off and on. And so I've spent a lot of time at home watching markets because a lot of it happens at night. So our business transfers quite seamlessly and, and lots of other people's don't. So you sort of feel sorry for those people. But at the same time, for us, it's, it's been a simple transition. Uh, looking forward to transitioning back at some point, but that's that's where we've been so far. So I thought maybe we'll get to your, your personal background uh, in a little bit, but first maybe if you give us a, an overall view of Munro Partners and how you guys look to invest in the world. So Munro Partners was set up just under four years ago uh, here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and, and put simply, Munro Partners, um, our goal is to be your global equity growth manager. So we want to be your growth manager. We want to... Um, we want to find big structural changes that are occurring in the world and invest in them and benefit from them. Um, and that's what we wanted to do. Munro is a, is a word of a mountain in Scotland. Um, there's, there's 286 of them. Your goal is to climb them all. And the reason why we did it on Scotland, it was a bit of a homage to some of the great Scottish fund managers that have simply been around for hundreds of years, whether it's, um, you know, Bally Gifford or, or more new days, Walter Scott or some of these older guys. They've been around for a long time. And we just looked at that and thought, why couldn't we do that from Melbourne? Um, and so we did that. And so we wanted to be a global growth manager. We run two products. One's an absolute return product, which is a bit like a, a reverse of a platinum. So platinum's global value, absolute return, and we're global growth, absolute return. And then we also run just a long only product, which is just our best ideas in the world, long, and that would you could compare, say, to a Magellan. And so going, looking at your personal background, going through your, your rap sheet, you had some time as, a, uh, as an oil and gas analyst at Deutsche Bank, which is a little bit different to types of opportunities you're looking at now. What were some of the learnings from that period analysing oil and gas stocks and, and how have they maybe shaped the way you look at opportunities today? Yeah, so the history there, um, so like, like I'm a Melbourne boy born and bred, uh, such as yourself. Um, and yeah, so ultimately like as most Melbourne people or of our generation did, we all, we all went overseas. We all put a backpack on and, and, and nicked off in the early 90s and, and went and had a good time. Um, and I ended up actually in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, of all places, running, um, working for Deutsche Bank as an oil and gas analyst. And the reason why we we're in Edinburgh is they owned a business called Wood McKenzie. Uh, Wood McKenzie was a, a, is a global oil and gas consultant. So we were like the number one ranked oil and gas team in the world. We we're based in Edinburgh. I was one of the junior guys in the team. And it was great fun. You know, we're covering, you know, Romanian refiners. I was IPOing Norwegian oil companies. Um, you went to Kazakhstan for your field trips and stuff. So, so you learned a lot about how investment banks worked. You learned a lot about how, how governments worked. You learned a lot about the system and you learned a lot about, and you got to meet some of the greatest investors in the world. So we would go to the Los Angeles to see capital. We'd go see Fidelity. We'd go see the guys in London. All the hedge funds were starting in London at the time. So you got like a really good taste of, of how things did. So it definitely helped me understand the global capitalist system. Um, in terms of oil stocks, uh, oil stocks had their time in the sun. They were great, but structurally, the industry has been declined for a long time. And so, yeah, what's interesting is ever since I became a fund manager, which is best part of 15 years ago since that, 
you know, the one sector I don't make money in is, is oil and gas. You invest in any commodity companies now? So at the moment, so yeah. So ultimately as a growth investor, we're looking for big structural changes. Um, the commodity companies that are interesting are things that are around electric cars, so lithium or cobalt or nickel. Because yeah. that's a big structural change that is affecting that market. Um, <clears throat> we have been short oil stocks in the last 12 months for reasons around the fact that there's a structural decline issue. Um, and so, yes, we do do commodities, but, 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 but not in the last few years, not as much as we did maybe five or 10 years ago. And I, I, when I've heard you speak before, it looks like a lot of the opportunities you're in are, are playing those structural changes in society, but then things that don't mean revert. I guess commodities, even in those growth sectors, I mean, we've seen lithium prices completely mean revert as the supply yeah. got ahead of the demand. Um, do you view those opportunities in a much more short-term nature than some of the longer-term cyclical companies that have, have tailwinds you're in that, that aren't commodity-based? Yeah, I think... I think and the older I got as an investor over the journey, the more and more I sort of started to realize that there's actually in equities, it's a game of very few winners and lots and lots of losers. Mm. Um, and, and the more and more you, you look at that, the more you realize that your time's probably better spent trying to find those very few winners. Um, and those few winners are always structural. So it's always a big structural shift. I, the internet came along or digital payments came along or, um, or you know, healthcare became really important, or or China came up and luxury goods became a structural shift. Those are the guys that you're sort of after that have those big moats and have that ability to build businesses over long timeframes. And more and more, you realise that if you spent your time looking at that, that trying to pick mean reversion or trying to pick cycles or trying to pick commodities, you you basically you don't have an edge. You you're basically adding as much value as the other guy is. Now some guys are really good at it, and and that's what they do, and that's fine. Um, and everyone has a view, that's fine. But, but I just prefer to find the companies that have those big structural tailwinds where I know they're going to win. And it just makes your life easier and uh, it's a much easier way to invest. So looking at your investment process, looks like you start with areas of interest, you frame it up as. What are some of those areas of interest that Munro are exploring that you find most interesting at the minute? Yeah, so if we, if we walk it backwards just a little bit and, I'll, and then I'll bring it back to your question. If you believe it's a game of very few winners and lots of losers, and we know it is, okay? So if you go back over the last 90 years of the S&P 500, right? You know, there's, or in the US, there's been literally 25,000 companies that have listed in the last 90 years. You can look it up, there's studies everywhere that will show you. Um, and if you just take, out of those 25,000 companies, 14,000 of them go broke, I go zero, over, go to zero over those 90 years. The next 8,000 only make enough to offset what the other 14,000 lose. You end up with just a thousand companies that make up the entire 45 trillion of wealth of the US stock market over the last 90 years. So less than 5% of all statistical observations. And then out of that thousand, if you take the top 50, they make up 40% of that 45 trillion bucks. So 50 companies out of 25,000 make up all of the upside, all of the returns, you know, or 40% of the returns of the market over 90 years. So now the problem is before you start, you don't know what those 50 companies are. So if we start this analysis today, we don't know what they are. Uh, but in, if you go back in history, if you look at those 50 companies today, you can see that they always benefited from a big structural change. Okay, so in more recent times, that's like e-commerce, so it's Amazon or digital advertising, so it's Google and Facebook. If we go, go back a bit further, it's, you know, it's Disney, which is entertainment, or it's McDonald's or quick service restaurants, or it's, um, it's Home Depot, you know. I always think about the Home Depot IPO roadshow because it IPO'd for like $300 million. That was it. 
and they walk in, they say, we're going to build this massive box outside of town and you're going to go there and you're going to spend a hundred bucks. And you can just imagine everybody in the room just going, that's never going to happen. I like my hardware store. It's right next door. And in the end, that's what happened. Or, you know, the Walmart business, et cetera. And, and so it's always these big structural changes that create these few winners. The second thing is, is there's always only a few of them, right? So even if you go back to aerospace, think about aerospace as a, as a big growing area. Um, and obviously now a big declining area today. But if you think about aerospace, you know, the reality is there's, there's heaps of people trying to build an aeroplane, but the reality is there's only two companies that got there, Clean Boeing and Airbus. And so there's always only a few winners and there's always these big structural changes that drive them. Um, and so you know that because you know that from history. Okay, so now take it forward. Where are the big structural changes in the world today? And inevitably they're all gonna be evolved around technology. Um, they have to be. And the reason why is because technology is the one thing in the world that's growing at an exponential rate. I, because Moore's law is improving and because computers get faster, technology grows at a faster rate, so disruption grows at a faster rate. Um, and so the big ones for us are really around uh, cloud computing. So when we're doing the Zoom video over the cloud, you know, obviously this was a structural shift that was occurring and after COVID-19, it's probably going to accelerate. Um, and there'll be winners out of that, um, being Amazon, Alibaba, Google, etc. cetera. Um, on top of that, there'll be software on top of that. So there'll be Zoom, which we're using here, or Salesforce or ServiceNow or Adobe or Microsoft, the software that, that uses the cloud to make it work better. Um, so they're big winners. Um, E-commerce is the other one, obviously. So you're using, again, technology to be able to deliver goods quickly and seamlessly to your house. Um, digital advertising, digital payments. So 50% of the world's still using cash, right? That's gonna go away. Digital payments are the big ones. They're the big ones in, in the tech world. And the last bit about that would be semiconductors. So the semiconductors are the weapons manufacturer in that war. Um, those would be some of the big areas. Uh, outside of tech, you're really looking at healthcare, obviously. So diagnostics is a big area we're investing in before COVID-19 and, and now it's clearly gonna be bigger. Um, so think about testing, the ability to do tests quickly. Um, and then consumer labels, consumer brands. So things like premium spirits. Premium spirits is a structural growth area. Um, it just is, you know, less than 20% of the world's drunk a premium spirit. Um, I'd argue it's quite resilient in this environment. Uh, and so from our point of view, um, premium spirits is a structural growth area for the world. And so that, that'd be a non-tech non one or, or say a Nike or a Lululemon. So where did Nike or Lululemon fit into that? Just there's the strength of their customer-centric brand? Yeah, no, more simply, it's okay. So, so let's assume that everybody structurally wants to be healthier over time. Yeah. And we know that. Um, that's a fact um, that you can see. And so the shift towards, you know, at leisure, as they like to call it, um, ultimately leads you towards um, better products. And, and look, you know this better than most people. And so, so what happens is that allows those brands to, to develop in that area. And so from our point of view, what, what we like about this is you get the tailwind, right? So no point investing it. You can invest in areas with headwinds, but it's hard because you're kicking against the wind, so to speak. So you've got the tailwind. And then ultimately, you've got to try and choose those couple of players that are going to win from that time. The, the companies with these tailwinds, they're expensive often. When, when you're going to invest them on traditional valuation metrics, how do you overcome that and, and weigh that up against the, the, the cheapness, if you like, of, of some of these companies that don't have the, the tailwinds at their back? Yeah, okay. So that's a really good question. And that, and that really comes back to what I said at the start. So the problem is, is, is everybody believes in mean reversion, okay? So yeah. everyone thinks everything mean reverts. So if it's expensive, it gets cheap, and if it's cheap, it gets expensive. And a lot of things do. 
but but if you look at those big winners, those really big winners over time, they haven't been reverted. They've continued. Sure, they've had bad years or bad couple of years, but ultimately they've continued to reinvest and to grow um, their capital over time. And so from our point of view, valuation is helpful, but what you'll find the market does is it tries to pin the thing to a market valuation. It says this should be at a premium, this should be at a discount. And it completely disregards this, this fact, this known fact, is that most companies go to zero. So I don't care how cheap it is, it's going to zero. <laughs> If that makes sense. Most companies lose. Okay? Yeah. That's the facts. Um, and there's only a few to win. And so you need to think about that when you're investing. Another way to think about it is, is, um, is, is, is so we've owned Amazon since 2013, right? It's always been expensive. Mm. It's still expensive today, okay? Um, but what you need to think about is what's the total addressable market that it can play into, and Amazon's is very big, and what's its ability to move into that market. Um, and then so... What a P multiple won't take account of that. And so over time, Amazon stayed expensive the entire way, yet the company just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because all it does is take all its money, invest it. Uh, the PL is not reflective of what the actual value of the business will be in the long run. And so really it's a case of, I think, or we think, about trying to find these areas of interest, trying to work towards finding those very few winners. And and yes, valuation is important on a short-term view, particularly, on a 12-month view, particularly, on a three-year view potentially, but on a 10-year view, most times it's irrelevant. And so when you pick a trend like e-commerce and you say Amazon's clearly the big 600-pound gorilla in the room, do you then accompany that with other smaller oper operators that you think could get outsized returns just because they're starting by a smaller base? And do you also short companies that are going to get disrupted? How sort of concentrated do you go into one thematic? Or, or do you just say... E-commerce is going to grow. Amazon's the best at it. We're buying Amazon. So over time, so the answer is yes, we do look at other businesses that could potentially have those same characteristics. And so when we look at e-commerce, we would look at things like, you know, we've looked at ASOS in the UK or we've looked at Kogan in Australia. Yeah. Or we've looked at, um, you know, these potential winners. What we found over the last 15 years of doing this is particularly in technology, there's this this concept of winner takes most. Yeah. So, so, you know, you used to try and invest in number two or number three, but number two or number three would always lose, you know. So a great example in Australia would be domain versus real estate.com. You know, real estate just, just, just knocks them out of the park. Um, and so from that point, that's what happens in technology and it's because of network effects. So everybody's on Amazon. So every, every, everything's on Amazon. So everyone looks at Amazon. So everything has to be on Amazon. So everyone looks at Amazon. That makes sense. Well, think about it from a Google point of view. You know, what's your number two search engine you use? Well, there isn't one. Mm. There used to be 11. Um, what's your number two Maps app that you use? Well, there's two or three. So you get this handful of winners effect. Um, and so what we generally find is there's a handful of winners. And what we've generally found is just being much bigger in the one that we think is the winner has worked better over time. Um, on the short side, to answer your question, so yes, we do short sell. Um, in the absolute return fund, not in the long only fund, we do short sell. And, and yes, yes, there are losers along the way. And so in e-commerce, we would be shorting now. Things like H&M, uh, it's a really good brand. It's a really good clothing brand, but it's done, you know, it relies on rolling out stores. It can't pivot to e-commerce very well. Uh, and the stock was expensive and wasn't as good a grower as you think it was. So yes, we do short sell, but important to remember in this game of very few winners and lots of losers, uh, you can only make 100% on a short. Uh, you can make a thousand percent on a loan, um, and so from that point of view, you know it's important to remember that equities—the ones that you get right—grow for a long period of time, 
And the ones that you short sell, you, you, you need to be there for a much shorter period of time because hanging on all the way to zero is very rare. And even if you do, the return's not that, nowhere near as good as the long return. And so it's a difference. So some people, managers will short sell to reduce the risk of a position they've taken or an idea they have. You're short selling in a sense to double up on an idea you already have. Like you're not, you're not shorting the second best Amazon to ensure any risk against Amazon, you're really doubling up on the idea that you already have. Yeah, you're trying to use it as a tool just to make money. It's not a relative return tool, it's, a, it's an absolute return tool. It comes yep. in handy sometimes. Um, my old boss used to use a great analogy that you'll understand. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's a bit like your left foot. <laughs> Most managers kick with their right, they kick better with their right. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you can kick with your left, it's helpful. Um, and sometimes being able to kick with your left like last quarter, yeah. allowed us to deliver positive returns in the March quarter because, you know, we had to kick, we had the ability to kick with our left and we, we did a lot last quarter. What percentage of your, your book in that fund would be short? Um, so in that fund last quarter, it got up to about 35%. Um, yeah. And, um, but, but generally it's between 10 and 30%. Um, because importantly, the return dynamics on a short over the long run are nowhere near as good as the return dynamics on a long. And so your right foot ultimately you know, when you're kicking for goal is the one you're going to kick with, um, if you're a right footer, of course. And your funds have performed really well over an extended period of time. How do you go psychologically with holding on to winners and not getting that urge that is sort of a natural urge as an investor to sell when, when something's been going well and, and trying to book in some profit? Yeah, again, great question and something, you know, that I've tried, we've tried to improve over a long period of time. Um, for us, it's about building a financial model. Um, and so if you, every time you look at Amazon and you want to sell it in the last five or six years, you actually know that the total addressable market for the company is, is, is ginormous. Um, and that ultimately, they've invested to win from that. And so ultimately, they, will, they should continue to work. And so the stock might have got ahead of itself. Mm. And it might pull back or it might look expensive for a period of time. And that happens all the time with Amazon. <laughs> Trust me, it's happened a lot. In the, in, the, in the eight years I've owned it, or we've owned it. But, um, but what's important is you build that financial model, realize that the potential is still there, and realize even though it's a trillion dollars, that there's no reason why it doesn't get to two or to three trillion dollars. Um, and I think that's being proved the case right now. You mentioned healthcare earlier on. I think if you're looking at, at macro trends, demographics is the easiest one just about there is to predict. Obviously, we know how old people are in different countries and know how old they're going to be in 10 years' time. What sort of opportunities are you seeing in sort of either healthcare or, or ageing demographics that are, that are prickling your interest at the minute? You know, so it's a, it's a great area to invest in because, again, you can find these great companies where they have great founders. Um, you know, Australia plays very strongly in this area. You know, good education system, great founders, good research system can find a great business and then they can use that technology to create, you know, an amazing, an amazing business. And in Australia, obviously, we have a number of examples, whether it's CSL, or, or, or ResMed or, or Cochlear, et cetera. Uh, look, from our point of view, it's really around diagnostics. And so this has become really clear just in the last three months, but we actually had this on uh, well before this, is that, is that we're not necessarily experts in what is going to be the next drug that works, or is this going to be the next tool that, you know, valve that fixes your heart, if that makes sense. Um, but what we know is diagnostics goes up a lot, right? So every time you get sick now, you go to a doctor, they run tests. And they run lots of tests because they want to keep you out of hospital. Uh, and now they're running lots of tests because they want you to not infect the rest of the population. Um, 
So, so test, 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 test. And this, is, this, was the, this was the mantra before COVID-19. It's going to be the mantra times two after COVID-19. And so from our point of view, it's about finding the companies that build those tests, um, that build the machines that make those tests. And so that's the companies like Thermo Fisher in the US, one of the largest life sciences companies in the world. So they're effectively a, a weapons manufacturer in the war. That's what we do quite often when we don't actually have the edge on the actual idea on the business. Uh, so that would be Thermo Fisher would be Danaher, the groups like Abbott Labs. And we would call them your classic weapons manufacturers in the war here uh, because they have the installed base, they have the distribution, they have the, um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the stuff that they have to put through the machine, I, the consumables, sorry, was the number and the word I'm after. Um, and so, yeah, it's very hard for them to lose here. And you don't have to pay a lot for them. They're 20, 22 times earnings, sometimes 25. Um, and you just get that structural growth trend for a long period of time. You're not paying a lot for it. Um, and so ultimately the stock will follow its earnings over time and you'll, you'll get the returns. And can you see those sort of tests being done more and more at home going forward? Is that one of the trends you see happening there? Or are you still going to be a case of going into a doctor's surgery and having tests done by... Yeah, I think that's the holy grail we're trying to get to. So Abbott Labs is a company we own, have developed a... They, they claim a five-minute test for COVID-19 uh, and they're rolling out 50 million units of that. So they're, 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 the holy grail is to get that five-minute test or that 10-minute test. And, and I think there's enough smart people in the world, there's enough technology in the world that they'll be able to do it. I remember reading a piece saying that by 2030, the most connected device in your house would be your toilet. <laughs> you go and do your business on the toilet in the morning and there'd be a test done on your, on your sample and, and send some data to either you or you automatically to your doctor if there were any issues. Uh, you haven't come across any toilet manufacturers exploring that at the minute. A lot of guys are. And yeah, it's important with the healthcare stuff, we are effectively playing the same trick here that we're playing in technology. Yeah. So a lot of people... A lot of people miss this, but the reality is, is that, that because of Moore's law, every computer in the world gets twice as powerful every two years, okay? And so that becomes an exponential. So I, two, you, know, you have two transistors on a semiconductor, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, becomes 32. So computers have been getting exponentially more powerful since about 2002. And surprise, surprise, you know, disruption's becoming a bigger issue since about 2002. So you've hit that apex of that exponential. And I think we all unfortunately understand what exponential curves look like these days. Um, healthcare is doing the same thing, right? So, so if you think about the genome, and I think that toilet article is talking about doing your genome, you know, the first genome cost, I think, a billion dollars to, to effectively run. And now you and I can buy a test kit and send it away to Ancestry.com and get our genome done for about a thousand bucks. And in, in time, it'll be a hundred bucks. And in time, it'll be 10 bucks. And that's when your toilet will be able to do it for you and give you that personalized medicine result. And so the companies that are winning from this, they're winning from this not because, you know, they're being, they're being massively inventive. They are being massively inventive or, or not because they've, they're beating their competitors. They're winning because there's this huge tailwind of which is that computers get faster and the faster they get, the more stuff we can do. Uh, the fact that we're even having this video conference, as you, as you and I would know, you know, video conferences over the years have, have got progressively better. Uh, to the point that they're now here. And it's, only, it's not because the guys got smarter, it's just because the tech got better and, and hence they can create a product consumer. And so not as an investor, just as a, as a human being, when you think about that disruption that's already come and is going to continue to come and the increasing computer power we're facing, how do you just feel as a, as a person as what the world's going to look like in 25 or 30 years' time? Look, generally hugely excited. 
Um, yeah, no, so, so we are optimists like uh, all the time. So this last period has been a little bit hard uh, because it's not nice seeing the world go backwards um, and it's not nice seeing people lose their businesses, et cetera. Um, but generally hugely optimistic um, because it's important to recognize how much these things are helping people. Um, so I know people focus on the privacy issues and they focus on a lot of these different issues out there, but ultimately, you know, they are all helping the world become a better place on average. You know, I understand that things go wrong along the way, but on average things are getting better. Um, and yeah, so coming back to your point about mean reversion, you know, this concept of mean reversion, I find it's just, it's just not gonna happen. It's very hard because if disruption accelerates and you know it continues to accelerate, because you know every computer in the world gets more powerful, then then hanging around for main reversions, you know, is a lost cause. It's not going to happen. Um, you're just fighting against an exponential tailwind. Um, and so from that point of view, it's hugely exciting. The hard bit is working out who's going to capture it. So which is the business? Which is who's the next Zoom who's going to work this out and get this and, and create that hugely profitable company? But we know they're out there. Um, and that's what makes you optimistic. It's, and, and so that makes it fun to go find them. What about the idea that when companies do get just too big, you know, we saw Microsoft in the in the nineties, Rockefeller with what was it, Standard Oil. Eventually, the government steps in and breaks them up, just because their scale becomes almost potentially a national threat. There's talk about companies like Google and Facebook just becoming so powerful and able to influence elections and and have all sorts of influences on our day to day lives. Is that sort of a risk you're taking seriously when you're looking to invest? in these companies? Yeah, 100%. It's, it is without doubt the biggest risk when you invest in these companies now. So, so let's just take the two things we talked about, i.e. that compute power gets more powerful and you have this winner takes most effect, right? So it's very, very hard for them to lose, if that makes sense. So if you, if you just think about Microsoft, right? So, and again, I'll come back to this video conference, you know, Microsoft, you know, its video product's not that great. Um, it looks at what Zoom's doing and goes, I'll take Zoom and just create Teams and, and they can do it. And Teams works really well. I'm sure people listening to this can see that. Um, and so ultimately it's very hard for Microsoft to lose here. Because A, there's that winner takes most and B, computers get more powerful. They've got the most money. They'll always stay in front. Mm. Um, so it's very hard to bet against them here. So the only way they lose is if they get broken up. Um, and that was definitely a risk. I would argue it's less of a risk today than it was six, 12 months ago. And I'll give you two reasons why, but it, but it is a risk. Um, and it's partly reflected in their multiples as well. You're paying a market multiple for Google, you're paying a market multiple for Facebook. The two reasons why it's less of a risk today is, is the fact that Google can track you is now a bonus, not, is now a positive, not a negative, if that makes sense. So governments are now having told Google they don't want you to track you, track people and privacy regulations, are now saying, hey, Google, can you please track all these individuals for us, please? So we can work out who has coronavirus so we don't get another flare up. Um, so that's point one. So that the people are seeing the advantages of what they have, not the disadvantage. The second thing is that ultimately we've seen in the last 12 months this big tech war between China and the US. Um, and the only countries in the world, the only country in the world that Google, Facebook, and Amazon have not dominated is China. And the reason why is because China, quite intelligently, in my view, refused to let them in. Uh, and by not letting them in, they were able to create their own ones, being Alibaba, Tencent, and, and Baidu to a certain extent. Uh, and so from that point of view, that's the new war in the world today, the new Cold War. And so it would not make, it makes perfect sense for the Australians or the Europeans to get really upset with Google, but it doesn't make sense for the Americans to. Um, and so it's very hard to see them 
being regulated universally across the whole world at the same time. That was always the, the juxtaposition when you had Trump in a trade war with China, but then he was looking at ways to weaken uh, the tech giants, which he pushed really came to shove. We're going to be his biggest ally if anything ever got too hairy with China. Yeah, and I think um, I think they maybe maybe it's a bit of a power play, uh, but ultimately, you know, even if you look at the Pentagon, you know, they're they're outsourcing the Jedi contract. They're they're moving to the cloud, mm. and you know, they're bidding with Microsoft and Amazon. Um, and you know, if you look at the tech war, you know they're upset about Huawei, uh, but only because they don't have an American company that can actually build a five G network. They only have Ericsson, which is Swedish, or Nokia, which is which is Finnish. So, so that's what they're that's part of where it's coming from. But I'd be surprised if they cut these companies off at the knees in the US. They will continue to get taxed. They will continue to get fined in in different countries for anti-competitive practices. All of that I see. Um, a lot of that's in the multiple already. Um, but remember those tailwinds that are there, which is computers get faster and it's when it takes most. And so ultimately, you know, risk reward, there's still pretty good opportunities here today. But but more importantly, we know there's other ones coming. A part of me looks at an Amazon and and the amount of jobs they're eradicating in the economy is a big, um, I don't know if it's a risk to them, but whether, you know, Bezos is saying your margin is my opportunity is pretty scary for any small retailer out there. And he's demonstrated that he lives by that. Do you think there's the potential for something like a universal basic income to be introduced in America? It's almost feels like it started with, with some of the checks that are being written. And does that then reduce, um, and reduce the pressure on Amazon to stop disrupting all these smaller retailers, which they currently are. Look, I think I'll put your question in a different way. Is is it at the end of this crisis, which is a terrible crisis for the world, and 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 hearts go out and thoughts are with these people out there. But the reality is, is it it it, it it's 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 destructive to small business globally, mm. um, and it's actually helping big business. Uh, so Amazon is taking more share. Amazon is getting more access to the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they need to manage that. Um, and it's all happening very quickly. So what was actually happening really slowly before is now happening really quickly. Um, and so there's gonna probably be, I agree, political ramifications of that down the road. Um, but the reality is, is if they manage that well, I mean, Amazon's already hired another 80,000 people in the US and they've said they're gonna to have to announce, hire another 75,000 people. Um, and I think if policymakers look at it smart enough, they realise that because of coming back what I said about, you know, technology and Moore's law and when it takes most, this isn't something you can stop. If, it, if you take Amazon away, another one will just appear. Yeah. <laughs> um, because you can't change. You can, I can build another search engine today if we want, but no one's going to use it. Mm. Uh, um, you know, it'll be sitting over there, it'll be exciting. And so, so everyone will still get sucked back to Google. And so I think these companies would welcome regulation. I think they'd welcome maybe even a bit of redistribution, um, if that makes sense. But but the, the Americans would be mad to cut them off at the knees because they have them. Um, what we need to do in countries like Australia and other places is try and build a few of our own. Um, and whether that's in healthcare or other places, that's fine, but, but we need to be much more supportive. And if you look at a company like Atlassian, for instance, here in Australia, yeah, re in reality, they've used a lot of this infrastructure. You know, they're probably, I'm pretty sure they're Amazon Web Services clients users, they use Amazon Web Services, they've used the internet, and they've managed to build their own one here in Australia. And I think that's what, what you should focus on here, not, not trying to cut these guys down because it's just pointless, another one will just appear. 
And you're part of the Currency Exposure Committee when you're at K2 Asset Management. How, how do you view uh, different currencies when you are investing overseas or do you just really look at the investment as what it would do in its own domestic currency? Uh, yeah, so no, so for the absolute return fund, so we run two funds, an absolute return fund and a relative return fund, okay? So the absolute return fund is designed to make you, you know, meaningful risk adjusted returns through the cycle. And we sort of say double digit is what we're aspiring to. So more than 10% per annum over a three to five year period, which it's done uh, in the last four years and, it, and you know, and it has in our previous track record. Um, in that product, you're more inclined to hedge the currency. And the reason why you hedge the currency is because the currency you know, it goes down, it goes up, but ultimately in Australia, at least, it goes nowhere mm. um, over, over a 25 year period. And so, so we run that about 50-50 hedged, 50% US dollars, 50% Aussie dollars. And the only reason we have the US dollars is because they, they, they're a good capital protection tool. Um, and that's the absolute return fund. And the reason why we do it that way is because if the Aussie dollar went up 20 cents from here, all things being equal, we're gonna lose 25% of your money. And we, and we just don't like losing people's money in that product. It has a high watermark, et cetera. The long only product is a relative return product. You compare it to the index. Uh, we just run that unhedged. So we, we, but, and we don't really care. We don't take currency into, into our view when we're investing. So we're trying to find the best company in the world. We know there's only a few of them. We don't really care where they're listed. You know, so we own Alibaba, we own uh, Amazon, we own um, Pernod Ricard in France. Um, we own Rightmove in the UK. Etc. So these are some things we don't really mind where they're listed. We just think they're great opportunities, and the currency stuff will all come out in the wash. I might finish off with three final questions if you're comfortable with that. Was your first ever investment? Yeah. Okay. So my um. So I grew up at a time in Australia where they privatised every business in Australia. Um. So I'm pretty sure my first one was Commonwealth Bank. Oh, what a view! And yeah, they were gifts. I mean, this was back. This was back in the 80s and 90s. You know, the government gifted you. You know, even Telstra was a gift. It's hard to believe now, but Telstra was an absolute gift when it IPO'd. I mean, they, they gave them to you cheap and they did really well. And so you, you, it was a really good thing they did in Australia. It, was a, it gave everybody, or gave me, I think I was about 15 or 14, gave me a great experience with the share market and then obviously captured your imagination after that. The three bucks or something around there? It's three bucks, yeah. It was sub-10. The early 90s, was it? Yes, it was sub-10. It was the early 90s. It might have been mid-late 80s. I'm, I'm going to have to check on Google. Yeah, great. And then they just gave it to you. Uh, I mean, they just gave it to you cheap. And they knew that if everyone got a win off it, that, that that would be good for them politically. They did exactly the same thing with Telstra. Yeah. And it went up a lot and then it went down a lot. <laughs> and they gave away Qantas at that time. Um, and I think Woolworths was around that time. Obviously, Woolworths wasn't government owned, but it, that also came as a really good IPO at the time. So you had this golden era of IPOs in Australia that, that, were, that, that, that basically captured your imagination because you made money on all of them. That was one of my grandfather's parting words before he passed away and I was still just a kid. He, he just told me to buy Telstra shares. That was <laughs> um, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self, investing or otherwise? Just remember there's only a few winners and lots of losers and try and find those few winners. And when you do, run them for long periods of time. Um, the best example I always give if for people who don't see it overseas is, you know, you know, in Australia, you know, the reality is you could have spent the last 20 years trying to work out what the economy was going to do, who was going to get elected, what the RBA was going to do with interest rates, or you could have just worked out that blood plasma was going to be really useful in curing diseases in the world and that CFL would win. And, and you, you just everything else was a waste of time. So when you find those few winners, 
and you know they've got that opportunity and nothing's changed, just hold them and run them because there's so few of them and they really do make your investment career. And what's the biggest mistake you see retail investors often make? If you know it's a game of few winners and lots of losers, then by definition, you are going to be wrong more than half the time. That's a reality. Um, and, and I can assure you, we're wrong more than half the time in every company we pick over the years. Um, and so on the one hand, while you have to be able to find those winners and hold them for long periods of time and understand that investment case and believe in it, and if it hasn't changed, don't change your view. But if something's changed, you need to be able to realize you're wrong really quickly. Uh, and so it's that ability to realize that you're wrong or, or, or the, the best, the ability to say, I've got this wrong and, and move on. And then, and not only will that help you cathartically move from that one that you've got wrong, but it'll also lead you to the one that's right. And so again, I'd use another example. So we all knew smartphones were going to be big, you know, we all had one. And you could be still sitting there owning BlackBerry shares going, you know, BlackBerry's going to be the big smartphone. <laughs> it's going to be the one. Uh, and you were right, but you picked the wrong horse. And so you've got to cut the BlackBerry and it'll move you towards the Apple. Yeah. Um, and so just be prepared to admit when you're wrong. And, and, and our retail investors make this mistake all the time. We all have a share that's in our bottom drawer. It's 90% off its peak. And we're sort of hoping it's going to come back, but we know it's not. Um, and, and you've got to work that out quicker because it'll help you find the right one. Beautiful advice. Mate, really appreciate your time. It's great to sit down with you and uh, good luck with the, uh, the investing. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Cheers, mate. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Thank you.